0: Matthew 24 and 25, tough chapters. Before I get into the main body of what I want to share this morning, I just want to remind, and Ben alluded to it uh, this morning, didn't allude to it, he just said it. (laughs) The church, the believers, we who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior We are going to be caught up in the air with Christ before all these events take place. If we have not accepted Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you're going to have to go through these events. We don't want that to be happening, and that's one of the reasons we want to get out and share the story of Jesus Christ so people don't have to go through the events here. But the disciples asked him, what's the sign? What's going to be happening here? And so Jesus is explaining quite clearly uh, what's going to take place before his final return, the second coming of Christ. And here in uh, our passage, as we get back into Matthew chapter 24, and we've, for those that uh, have not been with us uh, that long, we've been going through from the birth of Jesus, beginning chapter 1, Matthew, all the way through. And uh, we're coming, getting towards the end of Matthew now, but it's um, been an amazing trip. And here it's near the end, just before Christ is actually uh, crucified, just a couple days before Good Friday in, in Scripture. And the disciples are trying to figure out what's what's going to be happening. They're expecting Christ to come right now and take control and, and establish his kingdom. Today we're going to be talking about something that is called the abomination that causes desolation. Most of us have heard that term, but what in the world is Jesus talking about? I'm trusting that we can clarify some things this morning, because Scripture is actually quite clear about what that is. You know, in our world, everybody wants peace. We pray for peace. We pray that things will get better. That's normal. You know, we we wish that the world would get along, wouldn't it? Uh, People pray for peace in the world that used to be the go-to interview answer for the Miss America contest when I when I'm crowned Miss America I'm going to do everything I can to bring peace to the world the peace accord after peace accord has been signed and peace accord after peace accord has been broken everyone wants everybody to play by the rules but they don't but we keep praying for peace and that everybody will get along better But they don't, (laughs) and peace and harmony can't be found because the majority of the world do not know and do not love Jesus Christ. Because he is the Prince of Peace that offers a peace that he alone can offer. He talks about his peace, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives, It's a peace we can have in the midst of trials and tribulation and and troubles. And we can only gain that by making Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been singing about that this morning, that He would be Lord, He would be King of our lives. But because the world has turned away from Christ, Scripture tells us that events in the world are just going to get worse at the time, up until the time of the end of the age which we're looking at here in Matthew 24. Now, I don't, I don't want to be a downer here this morning, but the fact is that human society, what they have to look forward to is a time that's going to be more and more severe as we approach the end of the age. That time is described very bri- briefly f- for us in one verse here in Matthew 24, verse 21, where Jesus says, For then there will be great distress. Some translations say great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. This is where we get the phrase or the term, the great tribulation. Over the past two weeks, we've been looking at some horrific events that are going to take place during that time period, the last seven years, before Christ comes the second time. Jesus returns in all his glory to take out Satan once and for all, and he sets up his millennial kingdom. And that's where the disciples were looking ahead to and expecting to happen very quickly and asking Jesus, so what are the signs? What's, What's the sign that we're supposed to look for just before this takes place? So Jesus, as we've already looked at, in the beginning of the chapter, he gave him six signs that were going to be taking place to mark the beginning of the end, talking about the birth pains, just the birth pains. The birth is not there yet. He talked about deception by false messiahs, conflict, wars and rumors of wars, uh, devastation, famines and and pestilence and fearful events, persecution and and death, defection, people turning away from their faith, and a final proclamation of the gospel to the whole world by an angel that God is going to send to give them one last chance. So he gives them this big picture of general things and and he knows that's not really what they're asking about because their question actually was, what is the sign? What is the sign of your coming? What's the one event that says, we'll know this is it? Because they will see, like we have seen, great deceptions and false messiahs, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and pestilence, How will we know when this is it? So starting in verse 15 of Matthew, chapter 24, he says, all right, I'm going to give you that one sign that kicks off the whole thing. And he says, so when you see, and the end of verse 15, let the reader understand. When you see, let the reader understand. When you see the one event take place you need to know and understand very little, literally that all hell is going to break loose. When who sees? When you see. It's a prophetic you. We talked about that before. When you who are alive at that time, when you see this happen, see what? So when you see, standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand the abomination that causes desolation that's the sign now what in the world is that well jesus told us to check out the prophet daniel he said as daniel wrote about so once again hang on to your seats and we're going to take a huge topic and try to make it as simple as possible Uh, At the end of these couple chapters, we might uh, hand out a certificate of some kind of degree here for all that we're learning. So we have to go back to Daniel chapter 11. And we're introduced to a very important personality whom we call the Antichrist. In verse 36, Daniel describes him as the king of who will do as he pleases, whatever he pleases, the king who will do as he pleases, he will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the god of gods. He will show no regard for the gods of his ancestors or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god but will exalt himself above them all. Last Sunday we looked at parts of Daniel, showing some of the tremendous battles that were going to be taking place. Once the Antichrist sets himself up as a king and ruler of the whole European Union, and then some, and he establishes the old Roman Empire... And an army from the south uh, coming up to attack uh, probably something from the African continent. Then the army from the north um, could very well be uh, Russia and the, and the uh, Arab countries uh, together coming down. And then from the east could very well be China coming across from the east. And, he, and the Antichrist goes into a rage and goes against all these nations and does battle against them all. And when he wins, he then commits... The abomination that causes desolation, as we'll see here in Daniel. Now, what is an abomination? The Greek word is budelugma. Budelugma. Basically means that which is abhorrent, that which is detestable, that which is repulsive to God. It's a word mainly used to speak of things associated with idolatry. Um, and all that goes on in the worship of idols. So there's going to be this great event in the future of Israel, at which time there will be an idolatrous act that is an abomination to God, something that takes place that is detestable to Him, and that will cause the destruction and devastation of the holy place, because the abomination that's going to cause the desolation is standing in the holy place. What is that referring to? It's got to be referring to the temple in Jerusalem. That's what's known as the holy place. You know, you, you, you've understood before that there, there is the holy place, there the holy of holies. Uh, that's where the abomination is going to take place, very specific. So what's the event going to be that's so horrible that it's going to devastate, going to ruin, that's going to leave the temple in desolation? Well, the fact that Jesus refers to it as the abomination that causes desolation means, first of all, that it's not just any old abomination. I mean, if, if you go through the Old Testament, there are times when scriptures say, and, and they and they and they cause an abomination when when they uh, defile a, a high place or a temple or or a sacrifice. But he's referring to an event that the Old Testament prophet talks about in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. It's not just a random event. It is the event. Now, we've already looked at Daniel, chapter 11, as regards to the wars and famines and other things that are going to be taking place. But in verse 31, we find a description of an interesting historical figure by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a Greek king that reigned from 175 to 165 BC before Christ. He called himself Epiphanes, which means the Great One. Okay, he took that title on himself. And from my reading, apparently on the side, the people started calling him, not to his face, referring to him as Antiochus Epimenes. Epimenes means madman or maniac. So that was a rumor that was going around at that time as well. So in verse 31, it says about him, about Antiochus, His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Interesting. That's the event that Jesus is referring back to. Antiochus Epiphanes reigned about 400 years after the prophecy of Daniel. Now remember, the Old Testament prophecies often had double accomplishments, something in the near future uh, to do with uh, history, and then something of a much greater spiritual significance much later on, which many of the prophets didn't see. Now, there are some historical books written of the events that took place uh, in the what we call the intertestamental period. That's the, from Malachi to Matthew, the 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And it's within that time frame that Antiochus Epiphanes reigned. One of the things that we can read about is when he tried to stamp out the Jewish religion as he slaughtered thousands and thousands of Jews, including men, women, and children, And in his worst act, as far as Jewish history is concerned, and spiritually for them, he desecrated the temple. He did that by going into the temple, and he slaughtered a pig on their altar. The pig was the epitome of unclean animals. Never allowed. And then, apparently, he stuffed pork down the throats of the priests, and then set up a Greek God as an idol in that place, and something that could have very easily been the, uh, the, the god Zeus uh, that he set up in the temple, all of which was an abomination to God and to all the Jewish people. And because of that, the temple became desolate. The Jews left. They never went back for hundreds- some years. They, they wouldn't go near the place because it was absolutely uh, defiled there would be no sacrifices left to offer. And it was not changed until the Maccabean Revolution took place, which overturned Antiochus' power, and they were then able to go back, purify the temple again, and restart their sacrifices. Now that sacrilege committed by Antiochus Epiphanes in the second century BC was a foretaste. It was a preview of the final kind of sacrilege that will be committed at the end of the age. And that's what Jesus was referring to. So when exactly is that going to happen? Well, it's not actually going to happen until the middle of the seven years of the tribulation time. Remember, last week we talked about the Antichrist setting himself up as a ruler, the whole European area, and he defeats the armies of the South and the North and and the East. And at that time, according to Daniel 9.27, and we mentioned this as well, Israel entered into a seven-year covenant with the Antichrist, with this great ruler, because they were afraid of all the other countries, and this great, wonderful, magnanimous ruler was going to help protect them and, and guard them. That verse says, he, talking about the Antichrist, Daniel says, he will confirm a covenant with many, talking about Israel, for one, seven, a period of seven, seven years. So that confirmation of the covenant of peace between the Antichrist and Israel will mark the beginning of that seven-year period. And for the first half, the first three and a half years, there will be relative peace. Israel will have this false sense of security. Then listen to what Daniel says, same verse, verse 27, Daniel 9, verse 27. In the middle of the seven, okay, three okay, and a half years in, in the middle of the seven, he, the Antichrist, will put an end to sacrifice and offering, and at the temple he will set up an abomination that causes desolation. For how long? Until the end that is decreed is poured out on him. That's the end of the second three and a half years. That is decreed. Now what does that mean? Well, if we go to Revelation chapter 13, it talks about that second three and a half year period. Listen, starting in verse 5. The beast, talking about the Antichrist, the beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies and to exercise its authority for 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander His name and His dwelling place and those who live in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And it was given authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life. The Lamb who was slain for the creation from the creation of the world. So, as we said, he makes this covenant with Israel the beginning of the seven-year period. In the middle of that, he starts his blasphemy. He starts blaspheming God, blaspheming his name, blaspheming his tabernacle and dwelling place and all those who live in heaven. And not only that, then he wages war against God's holy people, against the believers that are there. He gains power over them and over everything. And then what happens? All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beasts. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, except those whose names are written in the Lamb Book of Life. And that is the abomination that causes desolation. Who is the idol set up in the holy place to be worshiped? It's the Antichrist himself. He is the abomination. He sets himself up as the idol and as the object of worldwide worship. And by doing that, he desecrates the temple. And all sacrifices to the true God by the Jewish na- uh, nation will cease and the temple will be desolate once again like it was when Antiochus came in. And all worship of the true God will stop. And that's, a- that's actually when the Great Tribulation starts. There will be a seven-year period. But the first half, as I said, it will be relative peace. But it's the second half, the last three and a half years that will be the great tribulation. So when he sets himself up as God, that's the abomination that causes desolation. Now, who's going to worship him there? Well, you may have already caught that, Revelation 13, 8. All inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast, all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lamb who was slain from the creation of the world. One commentator described the beast or the Antichrist this way. He is Satan's counterfeit king. He becomes king of the world and he is a demon-possessed, hell-inspired, Christ-hating, God-defying, Christian-killing, Jew-despising, man of sin who takes over the reins of rulership in the world and Satan pulls out all the stops to try to destroy all Christians, all Jews, the nation of Israel and stop Jesus Christ from establishing his kingdom. What about the believers? What about the ones who have turned to Christ during that seven-year period? And we we talked about that taking place because of the message of the two evangelists that God sends. What is their reaction supposed to be at that moment? What are they supposed to do? Run! Seriously! Seriously! The next 12 verses are a severe warning to those who will be there at that time, to those who will be there when the Antichrist takes his place in the Temple of Jerusalem. Remember verse 15? Started with when? So when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, then you jump to the beginning of verse 16, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Run! The Greek word is fuego. We get the word fugitive from that. You need to become a fugitive. He's saying, run, get out as fast as you can, because as long as you stay in Jerusalem, you're going to be vulnerable to death. You're going to be vulnerable to persecution, especially if you're a Jew, because the Antichrist wants to stamp out the Jewish nation. Satan has wanted to do that from the beginning all through history, because if he can eliminate Israel, God's chosen people, he can thwart the whole plan of God, which is to fulfill ultimately in bringing Israel to salvation and to their kingdom. Satan has tried to wipe out the Jews throughout history. And when the Antichrist takes over Jerusalem, the Jews that are left there are going to be vulnerable. And so he says in that day, you better run goes for any believer, not just the Jews. Jew and Gentile living in that area because his intent will be to wipe them out. And We just saw that in Revelation 13. He's going to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. And so most scholars believe that when this happens, there will be a sort of a grand exodus out of the land, out from the city of Jerusalem, out from uh, Israel proper for, for, for protection. But not everybody is going to make it. Not everybody is going to make it. If we go back to Zechariah, Old Testament, chapter 13, verse 8, where he's prophesying about this time period, we read, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish. Not all the Jews are going to make it. The Antichrist is going to move against them and two out of three are going to die. That's going to be a terrible, terrible slaughter. The holocaust on the Jews of the future is going to be far greater than anything that we've ever seen thus far. Two out of three are going to die. That's Zechariah uh, prophesying in the Old Testament of what's going to happen. If we jump to the last book in, in the Bible, Revelation chapter 6, verse 9, uh, that's when the fifth seal is opened in chapter 6, and this is a seal that describes that same time period during, uh, known as a tribulation. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. Those are ones that didn't make it out of Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 11 talks about 7,000 people dying in the city of Jerusalem through an earthquake. Chapter 12 verse 11 says, There are martyrs who did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So they they did not give up their, their faith in Christ and they were killed for it. Chapter 13, verse, uh, verse 7, which we just uh, looked at. Um, he, he says he's going to make war against the saints and conquer them. Chapter 17, verse 6, pictures of the false religious system, quote, drunk with the blood of God's holy people, the blood of those who bore testimony to Jesus. All those passages show us that when this thing happens, the abomination that causes desolation is set up. The Antichrist becomes a ruler of the world. He's energized by Satan. He's assisted by demonic forces and by men and women who do not uh, believe in Christ all over the world. He moves against Israel and they have to run for their lives and only a third of them are going to make it. Now, back in Zechariah chapter 13, again, as I said, hang on to your seats here. We're flipping around, but it's, it's amazing what opens up here. Zechariah thirteen eight, 8, where it said, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck and, and perish. Verse 9 says, Yet one-third will be left in it. The third I will put into the fire. Figurative figuratively speaking, I will put in the fire, I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is my God. One third of them. And those who are left, those who do flee, there will be supernatural help for them. There's a fascinating passage in Revelation chapter 12 that gives us some imagery here. There's imagery of a woman, there's imagery of a child, and a woman is Israel, and the child is Christ, and it describes the fact that out of the nation Israel, Christ is brought forth, and then there's a dragon. There's a dragon in this picture, and the dragon is Satan, and the dragon persecutes the woman, talking about Israel, and wants to kill the child, talking about Christ, And there's a great champion for the cause of God to protect the woman and the child. And it's none other than the angel Michael in verse 7. And Michael is the great warrior protector for God. He's the one that God sends out to fight for him. And he fights the demons and Michael prevails in verse 8. So Michael becomes a victor. And then we go a little bit further in in, in the chapter to verse 6. Uh, The woman fled. Isn't that interesting that Jesus said flee to the mountains? The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. That's the time of the great tribulation, the second half, from the time the Antichrist sets himself up in the temple to the end. One commentator said that out in the wilderness of Israel is actually a great place to flee because there's, there's caves everywhere, down into Edom and over into Moab and everywhere. There are many places to hide in the desolate wilderness in that area. Then in verse 14, as this woman, talk, again, talking about Israel, is fleeing from persecution, quote, "...the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly to the place prepared for her in the wilderness." Many commentators believe that this is referring again to the the angel Michael, picking up the one-third that's left and taking them to the hiding place that God has prepared for them. Where, and listen to this, she would be taken care of for a time, times, and half a time. Out of the serpent's reach, out of the reach of the Antichrist. God is going to hide them, He's going to guard them, He's going to protect them and care for them For how long? A time, times, and half a time. What does that mean? Well, it's kind of a poetic way, say, a time equals one, times equals two, and half a time obviously is half. So again, you've got three and a half for three and a half years. We have that same time period. So for those three and a half years, supernaturally, Michael and his angels are going to deliver the people who are able to escape into a place of safety and a place of protection. Now, coming back to Matthew chapter 24, Jesus says, When you see the Antichrist setting up in the temple, the abomination that causes desolation, run! Flee as fast as you can. Run for your life. In fact, he says, flee to the mountains. And that verse, starting in verse 17, it becomes very descriptive. Let no one on the housetop go down to take anything out of the house. When that happens... In those days, the housetops were kind of their patio. It was flat on top. They had a stair, a steps that went up the side of the house. In the cool of the evening, because the the house had gotten warmed up, they'd go up and uh, hang out on the top of their house. The, the breeze would be blowing. It would be much cooler. He says, if you happen to be caught up there when this happens, don't even go inside to pick up anything. Don't Don't take any belongings. Get down the stairs. Get out of town. Because when this happens... As it says in Revelation, devastation will come like death, like a flood. It's going to be like a flash flood, like a fire across the land. Just get out and run. Any delay will mean death. Jesus goes on in verse 18, let no one in the field go back and get their cloak. You know, when you go out to your field, it's, you've got a cloak on early morning, a little bit cool. You put your cloak down on the side of the field. You go out in the middle and start working. It's and he says, if, if you happen to be out in the middle of the, uh, of the field and you hear this take place, run. Don't even go back to get your coat. Run. Death is coming. And then verse 19, how dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Why? Why, Why the word dreadful? Well, yeah, it'll be much harder and much more difficult for a pregnant woman to run. Or for mothers who have their little infants and try, trying to trying to feed them, so of course it's going to slow them down, and they will be much easier to catch. But the word "dreadful" caught my attention. Why dreadful? I mean, everybody's going to be scared. Everybody's going to be terrified. But it seems to indicate something far more, far worse. And if, if we look back through Scripture, we, we see a passage in Hosea chapter thirteen talking about God's judgment on those. Who have rebelled against him? In particular, Samaria. And in verse sixteen, it says the people of Samaria must bear their guilt because they have rebelled against their God. They will fall by the sword. Their little ones will be dashed to the ground, and their pregnant woman, excuse me, quote, will be ripped open. Horrible, horrifying, dreadful. But, you know, we see that fulfilled a number of times as we go through Scripture. Even when Christ was born, when Satan tried to stop the birth of Christ, what did he do? He massacred all the, the infants. When Satan wanted to kill Moses, a type of Christ, what did he do? Massacred all the babies, trying to get Moses. Moses. It won't be any different in that period of time either, the time of the Antichrist. I think Jesus was saying that the Antichrist is going to come and he's going to go for the babies. After all, babies are going to become adults. The evil that will be evident is unbelievable. We can't even imagine it, but that's because we don't understand the nature of the Holocaust when Satan has total control. When the church is removed and God lifts his restraining power off of the world, all sin runs rampant. So Jesus says, in that day, you better run, and you better run fast. Unbelievable. And then verse 20, he says, Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. Why? Well, the first one's uh, fa- fairly uh, obvious. Uh, it's cold, it's snow, maybe, rain, uh, uh, and you're not even supposed to get your coats, right? <laughs> Just run. Hope. Just pray that it's not going to happen in winter. On the Sabbath, the law was you couldn't walk more than, what, 2,000 cubits. It's 1,000 feet, 10 football fields, the extent of the 24-hour day. And if they caught you walking more than that, you'd be susceptible to stoning to death. And if people see you going further than uh, 1,000 feet, you can get stoned. So so pray that it's not going to happen in winter or on the Sabbath. Why the urgency? Verse 21, For then there will be great distress. That's the word for tribulation. There will be great tribulation, unequaled from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equal again. The worst time the world has ever known. You can pile up all the holocausts in human history and they won't match this one. Just get out as fast as you can. And many are going to die from all that's described in verses 4 through 14 that we've looked at the past couple of weeks. Because when the abomination of desolation takes place, that's the trigger. That's the trigger. Then comes the war and the rumors of war. Then come the worldwide breakdown, the famines, the earthquakes, the pestilences, the betrayals and the persecution and the hatred. It all begins to break loose. And that period again lasts for three and a half years. Even Daniel chapter 7 verse 25 says, The holy people we will be delivered into his hands, talking about the Antichrist, for a time, times, and half a time. So the two or three places in Scripture that uses that phraseology. Now how severe is it? Jesus is unequaled. Unequaled. From the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. It'll be the worst time in the history of the world, and then verse twenty-two is fascinating. In those days, in those days, had not if excuse me if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be shortened. What in the world does that mean? Over and over and over again, from the Old Testament to Revelation. They're reiterating three and a half years, three and a half years, three and a half thousand two hundred sixty 1,260 days, 42 months, three and a half years. For well, what does it mean those days will be shortened? There's nothing in Scripture that even alludes anywhere else to the fact that that time period is going to be shortened. Granted, God can do anything He wants, and He's got the freedom, He's got the liberty to do that, but it's not like Him to change Scripture. So is there another explanation? Well, after studying on this, I, I've, I've come to a conclusion that when all of this horrible holocaust and tribulation takes place and the people are running for their lives and they're out hiding because Michael has taken them to the place that God has prepared for them, that God supernaturally, by His mercy and by His grace, is going to alter the length of daylight in order to give them protection of darkness. How have I come to that conclusion? Well, let's look briefly at a couple of passages. Revelations chapter 6. <clears throat> excuse me, verses 12 to 13. Here the sixth, number six, seal unfolds during that time period. And it says, I watched as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned blood red, and the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs drop from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. Now, I think what you have here is some kind of alteration of heavenly bodies going on. Something huge happens, and when the sun becomes black, it gets dark. And the moon's going to be dark, and we mentioned last time, because the moon reflects the light of the sun. You take all the stars out, and it's dark. I mean, it's pitch black. Chapter 8, we have the second set of judgments with the trumpets that are blown. Watch what happens in chapter 8, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned black. A third of the day was without light. Look at that. And also a third of the night. Daylight will be reduced by a third. Isn't that fascinating? Then if we look at Revelation chapter 16, verse 10, it says, The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony. That's how terrifying that was. Pitch black. And what seems to be happening is gradually there's going to be less and less daylight until ultimately at the end of the tribulation time is total darkness and the armies of the Antichrist are moving around in pitch blackness trying to find those who have fled. And they are then protected by the darkness. Now going back to Matthew chapter 24, verse 22, with that concept in mind, and I can't be dogmatic about it, uh, but it certainly makes a whole lot of sense. With that in mind, Jesus says, in those days, had not, if those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be what? Those days will be shortened. The daylight will be shortened. In order to protect, care for, and preserve God's chosen people, both Jews and Gentiles who have come to Christ, those days will be shortened. Fascinating. Folks, God has always promised to care for his people. It doesn't mean that we're not going to face issues and have, have troubles and even tribulation at times. But he says, I will never leave you or forsake you. He said, I will hold you up by my righteous right hand. And in that time, there would be no one left if God did not intervene and change those days so that they would be safe. What an encouragement that should be to us of what lengths God will go to to guard us and to protect us, even to shutting down the sun, moon, and stars, and moving mountains. So we have this severe calamity taking place, and there seems to be an attempted Deception that will happen while they're out hiding. Now, picture this those folks that get away, the one third, they're out in the wilderness somewhere, up in the mountains, in caves, wherever they might be hiding and being taken care of by God. We don't know how it's going to happen. Uh, you know, you're talking three and a half years. I don't know if God's going to send manna down again. It doesn't say how He's going to do it, but He's going to take care of them. They're scared. And they should have had time to read Matthew 24 by that time, because we certainly have. And what do you think they're waiting for? They're waiting with expectation for Christ, for the Messiah, to come and save them. People are in great desperation and are extremely vulnerable, and some false prophet will be coming out and running over and say, hey, he's here, he's over there. Come and see. Come on out. Come and see. The answer to their prayers, right? The answer to their expectation. Oh boy, he's here. So Jesus, knowing this is going to take place, says in verses 23 to 26, there in Matthew 24, at that time, if anyone says to you, which he's assuming is going to happen, or he knows is going to happen, look, here's the Messiah, or there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you ahead of time. He's saying, listen up, I'm telling you ahead of time. So if anyone tells you there he is out in the wilderness, do not go out. And, and, or here he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. They're going going to come and they're going to do some amazing supernatural miracles, signs and wonders. So great and so amazing that if you don't know ahead of time what's going to be taking place, they might even fool and deceive the elect, those who have come to Christ. But that's why Jesus is warning them so they will not be deceived. He's telling them ahead of time, don't be be deceived. This is going to happen. Don't fall for it. So how are they supposed to know when the true Messiah actually comes? Verse 27. This is great. For as lightning that comes from the east is visible even in the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There will be no doubt. You're not going to need prophets or messengers to say, Hey, the Messiah is here. The whole world is going to see it. Revelation chapter 1 verse 7 says look he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him Revelation 19 after this i heard what sounded like a roar of a great multitude that's going to be taking place at the same time a roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting hallelujah Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for true and just are His judgment. He has condemned the great prostitute who corrupted the earth by her adulteries, referring to the Antichrist. He has avenged on her the blood of his servants. In verse 11 I saw. Heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. It's going to be fascinating to find out what that name is. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, coming out of the mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Wow, that's the event. That's the event. There will be no doubt. Don't go listening to any deceptive prophets, Jesus is saying. This is going to be coming, and everybody's going to see it. And It's going to be glorious, and it's going to be victorious, and it will be final. Once and for all. Yes, things look horrible now, and they're going to get horribler. But folks, we've read the end of the book. And guess who wins? (laughs) Jesus, Lord of lords, King of kings. There's one more thing that will happen immediately. Verse 29 starts with immediately. And we're going to stop there. And we're going to encourage you to come back and find out what that last immediate thing is going to happen. It's amazing. So the question this morning, do you have peace in your hearts? Horrible stuff is going to take place, particularly the last three and a half years of that tribulation period. But we don't have to be a part of that. If we have asked Jesus Christ to be Lord and Savior, he's going to take us up before that happens. We're going to come back with him. We'll be talking about that a little bit uh, next week. We're going to be coming back with him when he comes. But if you haven't made that decision, if there's a decision that you need, you need to make, we need to make Jesus Christ Lord and Savior of our life. The Apostle Paul says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's, that's a wonderful message. That's where we all need to be so we don't have to worry about what's going on. The concern that we have to have about what's coming in the future and all these signs and everything taking place is for those that are out there that have not yet accepted Jesus Christ. And that should be a burden on our hearts to be able to share the news with them so they don't have to go through that as well. We have a a story to tell a nation, don't we? We sang about that and we have this story. It's a wonderful story and we need to tell that to the nations. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, this morning, we thank You. We thank You for the wonderful story. We thank You for Jesus Christ. We thank You for the salvation that we have, and we rejoice in that, and, and, and we'd love to walk in the, in, in the steps, in Your steps, and, and be guided by Your Holy Spirit, but Father, there are so many that are around us. We, we all know them, whether it's neighbors, whether it's colleagues at work, whether it's people that we know, um, the grocery store, or other places playgrounds, I don't know. Father, there are so many that still have rejected Jesus Christ. They may not even know that they've rejected him, but by not accepting him, it comes down to the fact that they have rejected. Those are the only two choices. Father, I pray that you would burden our hearts to share within the story of Jesus Christ. Because we know Jesus is coming back, and he's coming back with chariots, he's coming back with his army, and he's going to take over. And we look forward to that day. So, Father, do a new work. If there's one that's listening this morning, whether it's in in the sanctuary, whether it's on Facebook, that you are speaking to, Father, I pray that you impress upon them the truth of your message, the truth of your love, the truth of your grace that is still available right now. We pray for that new work. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.